when we lose in life, we stop trying at that thing that we failed at and we move on to other things. But in sports, that's not how it works. You lose, you go back and you play the next week. Mm-hmm. And you keep fighting and you keep improving and you do it over and over again. And that is a life lesson that is very hard to learn, but very easy to learn in sport. Welcome to What Unites Us, a podcast about building businesses meant to last. We're your hosts, Taylor Justice and Esther Farkas. We lead Unite Us, a technology company that connects health and social care. We became curious about the way other leaders develop, innovate, inspire, and lead to drive change. We've invited an incredible lineup of visionaries to share their experiences, whether they created a new industry, turned an existing one on its head, or breathed new life into an old brand. We're glad you're here. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, I'm Taylor Justice, and this is What Unites Us. And I'm Esther Farkas, and I'm super excited to welcome my dear friend Lindsay Behrens to the show today. She is currently president of the Oakland Roots Professional Soccer Club and also the soon-to-come Oakland Soul Women's Professional Soccer Club in Oakland. Lindsay, it's so good to have you. Tell us a little bit about the team and how you got to where you are today. Oakland Roots is a men's professional soccer team that plays in downtown Oakland, and we just announced next year we're adding a women's team called Oakland Soul. The men play in USL Championship, which is a professional-level men's league in the United States, and the women will start in the W League, which is a pre-professional league also under the USL umbrella. So we're a purpose-driven club. We are dedicated to our values, and we are committed to Oakland. That's very unique in the world of sports. It's becoming more common for teams to be active in their communities and for businesses in the United States to have values and a commitment to their community. Yeah. But the Oakland Roots were founded on the basis of that, and it's very unique. And it's what attracted me to the Oakland Roots, and I will say since I got there, the great thing about this organization is that there is no sunlight between what we say we want to do and what we actually do. We actually take our purpose into account in all of our decisions. What does our fan base look like? How do we fill our stadium on game day? That means we have to price our tickets appropriately so we're accessible to everyone who lives in Oakland. And so our purpose is to harness the magic of Oakland and the power of sport for positive social force. That doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. We do. But we really do our very best to live our purpose every single day in every single decision. Well, that's obviously fantastic. But the question that I think of immediately is, does it make it harder to build a professional sports team when you're also looking for sponsors, you're trying to find the right talent, you're trying to recruit athletes to come in? I think some people will shy away from those values when it comes down to dollars and cents kind of walk through not just, I guess, the decision-making process of being accountable to what you say you're going to be accountable to, but maybe some of the hardships that come with that. Short-term, it can create hardships, but long-term, it's the value of our organization. There's value in our values. We believe that we will be a far more successful and ultimately profitable and valuable organization by having this purpose that we're dedicated to and living it. And our organization will be worth more to our community, but also to our investors if we are successful in doing that. But yes, there are definitely short-term times where there are consequences because we will not compromise our values. There have been 
corporate partners that we have considered and that we have declined on the basis of them not fitting our values. That requires a real commitment from your ownership. And that is not easy to come by. And we are very fortunate to have unity amongst our owners, our founders, our employees, our coaching staff, our players. Everybody understands what the purpose is when they walk in the door. And the expectation is that we comply with it in all things. Well, I think that's how you create legacy because it's playing the long game. And it's also creating those ties to the community where they're invested in your success. They want to show up, they get rowdy, uh, and they come support the team. We're going to come back to your current work, but how do you know Esther? So Esther and I have known each other since 2007. Okay. Yeah, yeah I'll take it. That <laughs> is a commitment. And I, <laughs> I applaud you. Oh my God. We were baby M&A attorneys together at a law firm, a stone's throw from here, Cleary Gottlieb. So for the folks that listen, we have a wide variety of people. So acronyms, M&A. Mergers and acquisitions. And what is, does that do? Buying and selling and merging together companies. We were lawyers for those deals. Okay. So how'd you guys make the connection? Well, I think we should start with what m and really like. And as I a, think we should definitely not discuss that. That's <laughs> horrible. Far more boring. Well, let's, let's start with just the general world of mergers and acquisitions and Wall Street law firms and corporate law, because I think that's relevant. I think that sort of tells you a little bit about why we became friends. So at the time that Lindsay and I entered this and we were fairly new and she's right out of law school, Yale Law, and um, maybe you'd worked for a year or two. And I think she'd worked at a law firm in Washington. I was right out of law school as well. And at the time, the way law firms are structured is there's a partnership and then there's associates. So we came in as associates and you choose, you know, a group that you work with. We're both assigned <laughs> to mergers and acquisitions because very busy time. And there were at the time no female partners in that group at all. In terms of associates, I think it was a fairly healthy mix, still a minority. And these big deals we were at, usually you had bankers, you had the company and their counsel, you had us and our team, and then you'd have any other accountants or advisors. And I'd say the chance of seeing a woman around the table, you know, zero to none. Yeah, often, <laughs> generally. I think, in the respective rooms we we're in, we're the only woman in the room. Yeah, so that was not unusual. And we're also very junior on our team. So we found each other, honestly, because we saw some similarities and could kind of navigate that world together. And yep. we did that for, I don't know, three, four years that we did that, right? Yep. Well, you obviously <laughs> left that place. Did you transition there? Did they become a White House fellow? Yeah. So Esther couldn't keep you. You had to go to DC. <laughs> All right. So tell us about the White House Fellowship. Okay, so the White House Fellowship is this very fancy program that was started by the Johnson administration during the Vietnam War when working government service didn't have a great reputation. And they wanted to make it something that people who were doing well in their careers would consider government service as a career opportunity. And so what it does is it takes people who are sort of mid-career, who've had success early in their career in the private sector, plus people from the military, and puts them into this fellowship program where you serve in the cabinet office, or I worked at White House OMB, or at that very high level in the agency director's office. Basically, you spend a year working in this high-level role in the government, and you learn about the job, like you have a job in government. But then on top of that, there's this educational component where you learn about leadership, public service, and government policy. 
So you spend like a year meeting with all these fancy people. You sit around a table with all the cabinet secretaries and talk about leadership and what decisions they made that led them to be who they are, where they are, and you learn a ton. And it's one of the most incredible years of my life. And I'm incredibly close to my fellow fellows. So anyway, it's a really wonderful program and more women and people of color should apply. So if you're interested in that, reach out to me on LinkedIn because I will literally talk to anyone about it. I'm a super advocate for that program. Like it was really life changing. And that made for a career change for you. So you stopped, I think, right then being a lawyer. So I started out as an activist. I was a union organizer. I worked did a ton of political campaigns. And then I went to law school and became a corporate lawyer. And then I went to the White House. And being in the White House Fellowship Program, you're constantly, it's like kind of reinforced, like you have already succeeded a lot in your career. Now, what are you going to do about it? The immediate response for me was to go back into politics. I'd run my friend's campaign when she ran for mayor of my hometown in 2015. Jackie Biskupski elected her mayor of Salt Lake City, first openly gay mayor of the capital city of the state of Utah. Which is, just to pause there, incredible. You went from being a lawyer to being very involved with media. You did that super well. And then you went on to be a campaign manager on this super important campaign. And to win it on your first time out, that's just, it's craziness. Yeah, thank you. It was a really great but also exhausting experience. So that was 2015, 2016 happened. 2017, I was like, okay, what should I do? I guess go back into politics, try to like fight for what is right. I went down to Alabama. I worked on Doug Jones' campaign, which was amazing. But... At the end of it, I was like, I just can't do politics. It's just exhausting, and it's just not for me. And I'm always disappointed, no matter the outcome, even in winning. I feel like it does so much brain damage. I could never, like, truly live my values because so much compromise is required in politics. And so this is early 2018, and I'm thinking, there's got to be a job for me that's at the intersection of my passion, which is social justice and social equality, and my skill set of business development, doing deals that I learned being an M&A attorney. Right. And at the time, I was looking for this place, an NWSL, the Women's Professional Soccer League in the United States, launched a team in my hometown of Salt Lake City, Utah. And it was just like a light bulb. I was like, duh, sports is the intersection of business and activism because you have these athletes that have these these passions and this platform to try to bring about social change. So to be really specific, I called my friend the mayor and I was like, do you know (laughs) the owner of this team? So it was Real Salt Lake. They were launching the Utah Royals. And can you introduce me? And she was like, I'm in my early 40s, like all this stuff I've done. And she's like, yeah, but like, what are you going to say to them? You've never worked in sports. And I was like, well, you know, I just want to like be in the organization and I want to see all the parts of it and I want to learn how it all fits together. And she said, do you mean like an internship? (laughs) And I said, yes, but let's call it executive and training. Um, So I got hired there as a lawyer, which I actually think might sound like, oh, that sounds really cool. You were able to get a job as a lawyer at a sports team. I didn't want a job as a lawyer. I had quit practicing law in 2011. I had moved on. Basically, it was like, well, you can be a junior sales exec or you can be the VP of legal. And I was like, okay, I'll be the VP of legal, which I know sounds amazing, but I didn't want to be a lawyer, right? But that was my way in. But it probably also gave you a look into the organization and how it operates in a completely different level, positioning you to eventually run an entire organization because you know the ins and outs of it. A hundred percent. I think the moral of the story, the takeaway for people who are listening, Mm -hmm. 
you get a job in sports by getting a job in sports. You just <laughs> take whatever job you can get. Yeah. Is it the job you want? No, it's not. The job I took wasn't the job I want. But I did my time there. I learned a ton about a new industry. And now three years later, I'm the president of a soccer club, which is an amazing job that I'm super happy in. Let's talk a little bit about building a team that's deeply connected to its community. Can you talk about just soccer in general? I mean, obviously, it's the largest sport in the world. But here in the U.S., we index a little bit higher on American football, basketball, and some other things. Is that also been a challenge of getting folks to want to come and participate within the games because they just don't know the game as well? I think that was a struggle over the past 20 years. I think we're now at a point where we have a proof of concept and MLS and USL championship, two fully professional leagues that are thriving in the United States are here to stay. I think in the past few years where people have started to open their eyes as to the potential of the game is on the women's side. And now that we have the NWSL, which is doing well and the USL is talking about launching Super League, which would be another professional league. W League, which is a pre-professional league, started last year and is thriving. We're seeing more and more people who have capital have realized the earning potential of the women's side of the game. And I always say investing in women's sports in 2022 is like buying the Yankees in 1973. Like it's all upside from here. I think a lot of the investment in the men's side, its growth is already baked into the asking price. But I think there's still incredible, like exponential growth potential on the women's side. And more and more people are realizing that. So I am very bullish on the future of women's soccer. Is this your forever job? Yeah. Also, like, did you play a sport? Did you know soccer? I was a recreational sporting person as a child. Uh Like many young women, when I hit my early teens, I stopped playing organized sports, which is actually a crisis in this country, how many young women stop playing sports, because leading an active life is very important. It's good for our physical health. It's good for our mental health, our emotional health. We learn so many skills and life lessons in sports that are really difficult to learn other ways. Leadership teamwork, and one that is the most important, resiliency. When we lose in life, we stop trying at that thing that we failed at and we move on to other things. But in sports, that's not how it works. You lose, you go back and you play the next week. Mm -hmm. And you keep fighting and you keep improving and you do it over and over again. And that is a life lesson that is very hard to learn, but very easy to learn in sports. And that's why I think it is so important that we have a full spectrum of sporting opportunities for men, women, and non-binary folks. Sports need to be for everyone. And that's why we needed to start a women's soccer team. But I do want to make super duper clear, that was the plan from the beginning. Predating me, I did not bring the idea of women's (laughs) soccer to the Oakland Roots. Yeah, I mean, I love what you said about sports being so applicable to life lessons. And you played... Do you? I do. As the person who always tells me to stop with all the sports analogies. Well, so Taylor was a college athlete. I played all through high school. And like I think about it, I played tennis. I was like a pretty decent tennis player. And literally, like I can still remember, like you lose a point. And tennis is an individual sport at the end of the day. It's not a team sport like soccer or like football. You're just out there. Maybe you're on a doubles team, but you're really all alone. And like I still remember, you know, you'd lose a point and you'd have to go and play the next point. I have to be like, I lost this point. I can win the next one. You lose the next one. I lost this point, but I can win the next one. Like you're just always thinking about how you're going to win the next point. And you got to put the loss behind you. 
And with each time you do that, you really transition from childhood into adulthood while you're playing yeah. these sports. Like that, oh, those are like super formative years of your life. <laughs> and that's where you learn some of those repeat motions that get ingrained into your brain, right? Yeah. It's like that idea, I could lose a point, but then win the next one. Like that applies to everything in life. But I also think to what you're saying before about being relentless in sports and in athletics, you're taught to push yourself beyond certain limits or where you thought you could go. And I think one of the challenges in the corporate world for those that maybe didn't play sports, it's hard to kind of talk about being relentless in corporate America. What do you think for those that are listening that maybe didn't come up in a sports background, how can they start to train their own teams about some of those values? Because I couldn't agree more. They're critically important, both to my own development, but just building solid teams where you take care of each other and you're in something as a unit rather than like individual contributors. I think there are ways to build teams that aren't necessarily sports focused, but I also think it's never too late to learn how to be an active person. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be a professional football player to take an appreciation and participate in physical activity. So I don't play soccer very much anymore, but I'm super into trail running. Um, I've gotten a little bit into weightlifting in the pandemic. And it's all about like, today I'm gonna run two miles. Thursday, I'm going to run three miles. And then Saturday, I'm going to run five. And then I'm going to have this schedule and I'm going to push myself. And I think that it's never too late to adopt an active lifestyle. And I also think that a lot of people are like, oh, I got to run. Nope, you don't have to run. Just walk. We have this massive mental health crisis in this country. And there are a lot of tools that people should look into to address their mental health issues. I run for my mental health. It's the number one thing I do. And I would just urge anybody who's in a funk to just stand up, walk out the door, walk around the block, start there. So we normally start with this. We didn't get to it, but I'd like to just talk a little bit about your childhood, where you were raised. Tell us a little bit about where you were born and your family. Well, I was born in San Francisco. So oh, I am a native of the Bay. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so I grew up in Utah in the suburbs of Salt Lake. So I'm a woman and also a queer person, which were two attributes that made growing up in Utah, a challenge. I love Utah. My family's still there. I go back all the time. Love to ski. Love to run in Utah. But it's a pretty conservative place, and that was challenging. I'm also the oldest of five kids, and my parents got divorced when I was pretty young. So, you know, I started exercising my leadership muscle mm -hmm. pretty young. Mm -hmm. Started being a very responsible person, driving the carpool, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And those things were very hard to recover from but they made me who I am, right? Like yeah. none of this is possible, like all these things I did. Yeah. None of that would have happened without all those formative challenges. So when you think about the longevity of your organization, will it be the brand or will it be the people that make it stick? We want our brand, meaning our club and what it stands for to survive all of us. So that has to mean that there's something in the principles and the values. Yeah. But those principles and values have no meaning if not for the people that are living them and expressing them. So I reject the question. I reject the binary. And uh -oh, uh, I just got unfortunately, it has to be both. Yeah. Yes, that is a correct answer. You don't have to pick one. There's no other. correct answer. But that's what's, a good answer. What's your answer for Unitas? <laughs> Mine's also both. Yeah. For very similar reasons. Because we've been at this for a decade, fighting for people to understand what we do, why we do it, and like what's Unite Us. 
and we're finally getting to a point where people know what Unite Us is, but they might have like a preconceived notion of what it is. But at the end of the day, all of that happened because of the people here. And not just us, but other people that believe in that vision and where we're trying to go. So I'm with you because it's not just about, okay, Unite Us, and we're doing X, Y, and Z. And I think it's probably very similar for you. It's changing a culture of how you deliver services in this country. That's what I want Unite Us to represent. But at the end of the day, we always talk about like you can't reinvent health and human services by eliminating the humans. Same principle. Yeah. It's about people and the brand is lifted up because of them. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Hey team, thanks for tuning in today. We want your feedback. Who should we talk to next? What questions should we ask? And what do you want to get out of this podcast? How can we get better? Email us at podcast at Let Taylor and I know what you think, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>